Are you a clinician in primary care who wishes there were better resources to help you understand how to navigate the concept of triage in modern general practice? We'll boost your triage skills with our dynamic five-session live webinar course tailored for primary care clinicians. Led by myself and Dr. Ed Pooley from Difficult Conversations, this comprehensive training covers all facets of remote patient triage, whether that be digital, on-call, or other opportunities. Through this course, you'll gain practical knowledge, exclusive hints and tips, and direct access to myself and Ed through open Q&A sessions of the course. Elevate your ability to manage primary care challenges effectively and confidently, and most importantly, safely. Register now to transform your triage approach at bit.ly slash GP triage course for GP in capitals. And we will definitely catch you then. I mean, the document's been pretty massive, hasn't it, Andy? I mean, in terms of how much there is, it's just loads of stuff to get through. Uh, yeah, yeah, but... it's, it's a big one. So, um, mm-hmm. but hopefully be informative for people. And yeah. I guess people are joining us now, I guess, Candy. Yeah, so welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us on this lovely Saturday morning. Be interesting to see how it is where you are. I know some parts of the country are really hot and things, but right here it's a bit overcast actually in Nottingham and things. Um, and we're about to get started looking at the NHS workforce plan. We're going to give people a little bit of time to jump in and settle themselves down and stuff. And if you are joining us, feel free to say hi in the comments. Let us know where you're from, what the weather's like. That'd be really cool. Um, and me and Andy have been going through this document for... <laughs> past few hours actually it's a pretty mammoth thing isn't it Andy yeah yeah it's a big document um I mean fortunately it's you know well constructed so there's a lot of information in the in the in the summary you know they pull all of the important points out to the summary so probably mm-hmm. a good way to do this is to focus on the summary and then dip into some interesting points that we found in the rest of the document mm-hmm. and I guess just for those that are jumping in and joining us live we're doing slightly different format this time so we're going to just have a little bit of a chat about some of the stuff we're up to and things um say hi to everybody say hi to Christina uh, welcome for joining us so yeah thanks for both being in here Kent's apparently lovely and sunshiny and hello to our regular JC Melody saying hi as well thank you to both um, and like I said to others feel free to jump in the comments and tell us how you're doing if you are watching us on YouTube you'll see there's a poll I've question I put up on there whether or not you have read the NHS workforce plan already wouldn't be surprised if you haven't it's 150 odd pages so it's a pretty mammoth thing but it's definitely hit the headlines at last week and stuff although it's already out of the news cycle as we can expect with most of these things and stuff just to let you know we've got some really cool stuff planning over the summer and potentially some events as well so if you're interested in that make sure you do subscribe so you get notified of all that stuff so if you aren't you know definitely subscribe and ring that little bell because that tells you when we're getting episodes me and Andy have been probably not as consistent as we would have liked to have been, but that's because of some personal stuff that's been going on. And, and I'm actually on holiday in a couple of weeks' time, so I'm taking one of the first proper breaks in a long time. Um, so, um, But we have got loads of stuff planned. In fact, I've got some episodes coming out in the next couple of weeks um, and some really cool things for you all as well. Um, what about yourself, Andy? Yeah, it's up to all, all sorts of different things, some of them with you um enjoyed going to google hq again um in the middle of last last week yep. i think we'll be doing a little episode to go out next week just talk about our reflections on uh, on the state of youtube health and video in medicine so that'll be fun um and uh, yeah looking forward to, to getting started to, to hear your opinions on the nhs long long-term workforce plan because we've not really spoken together about this too much just spent some time separately having a look at the documents so really exciting and i'm hoping i'm hoping your back will become better soon gandhi i know you're standing because of yeah. that a poorly back. Yeah, 
So twinge my neck, I think, this morning. So I've got a little bit of pain going down there. So hence why I'm standing today. But actually, it's all good and stuff and things. So, um, yeah. So how about we get cracking then? So um, let's um, just switch this over. It's just been a little bit slow for some reason. Well, it looks like Streamers let me down, Andy. Oh, my goodness. You you're, go. you're a bit right. Well, well hopefully you'll be okay. Let's have a right, go, John, shall John, we? Do you want me to run the, uh, run the video? Have you lost me? No, you're here. Crack on, Gandhi. Okay. Unless you've lost us. I'm afraid my... So whilst Gandhi battles with uh, with technology over that end, welcome to um, this episode where we'll be going through the NHS long-term workforce plan. Uh, I can see Gandhi always talking to us, but we can't hear him. Um, let's let him, I'll kick off and we'll let Gandhi um, try and sort out his technology in the background. So 150-page document, um, but we're used to doing these big uh, documents with you. We've got a bit of a standard plan of attack. Um, so... The NHS Long-Term Workforce Plan. Uh, so it's a publication from NHS England. It's commissioned by the government. It's accepted by uh, the government as um, informing policy going forwards. Uh, there's been discussion with the Treasury. Gandhi will be joining us back in a second. Um, there are some spending commitments in there. So there's been discussion with the Treasury. So this is sort of quite a you know, concrete commitment by the government to um, try and address some of the problems that have been facing the NHS in terms of workforce. There are many problems facing the NHS, only one of them is workforce, uh, which we'll always later. So, but this problem is significant. Um, the uh, document itself acknowledges that there are vacancies across the NHS totaling 112,000, so huge vacancies. The NHS is, I think, the largest single employer in Europe uh, still, but that's a huge number of vacancies. Uh, and the plan zone modelling suggests that those vacancies would rise to 360,000, so almost triple by 2037, which is the 15-year period over which the NHS uh, long-term workforce plan um, covers in terms of its planning. Uh, so without action, those would increase to 360,000. So um, just spending a few moments just looking at, at the contents page, because you know this is giving you a bit of an introduction this morning. Uh, but if you want to know more, then you know pick up the document and have a look. But just to know what to expect, uh, there's a summary. Uh, we'll be spending most of um, our time in that summary section, actually, because it pulls um, the most important information from the other areas. Um, and then we'll be dipping in and out of the other chapters, um, covering uh, case for change. Um, there's three main um, priority areas identified in this document, which comprise or make up chapters two, three, and four, and that's train. So they talk a lot about training, they talk a lot about retain, they talk a lot about retaining staff, and they talk about reform, which is about sort of working differently, doing things differently. Uh, it's quite a lot in that area, um, actually, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, then they talk about next steps, and then there's some interesting information in the annexes, uh, but largely about how they have um, calculated various things around uh, demand and staffing and assumptions that they've made when pulling this report together. So, forward, I'm just going to check in. Yeah, I can hear you. Yep. Welcome back, Andy. 
Sorry about that, everybody. I have no idea what happened. It just decided to go whappy as I dialed in and stuff. So we apologies for that and for the experience you may have had as a result. But definitely um, glad to be back. And yeah, let's have a look at this document. As Andy said, lots of stuff in there. The three key things about the you know train, retain and reform. We're going to go through those in a bit more detail in the case for change in particular. Um, but as ever, there's always that summary slash forward slash thing. So let's take a look at it, shall we, Andy? Yeah, so um, so a lot of this is sort of, you know, the NHS is 75 years old, it's a big achievement, it's valued um, and so forth. But just some interesting things to to pull out is just that vacancy level, which we mentioned you know, earlier in the introduction, uh, but 112,000. I was just Gandhi, how many people work in the NHS? It's just struck me that we could do with some context for that. And the document itself doesn't actually provide the overall staffing um, numbers. But have you got any sense of, <laughs> no, it's... I know it's the, the no. largest employer in the world. Or the yeah, I, I mean, I think, it, like you said, it's the largest employer in Europe. I think it's the fourth or third largest employer in the world. Um, and um, you're right, a lot of the, the stuff in the document, rather than talking about current numbers, it talks about training. Um, so increasing the actual numbers and stuff. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, so big vacancies. Um, documents projections project that that will sort of triple to maybe 360,000 by the end of the 15-year period covered by this document. So, uh, and that's if we do nothing. So it's making the case for doing something, making the case for taking yeah. the measures you know, described in this document, essentially. Uh, and then the forward introduces those three priority areas. So we're looking at trains. So they're really talking about significant increases in the numbers of training places um, of uh, professionals across the board actually um, and they're also talking about changes into how those are structured so we'll be talking a little bit more but one of the most interesting things for me was the introduction of um, apprenticeship training for it looks like practically all roles including that of medical doctors which I think is really really interesting we'll look at what that means and what we might expect from those sort of when we get to that section but that was something I thought was really um, exciting actually. Uh, coming you know working from a deprived area I think that could open up a lot of opportunities for people who live in my area that might not mm -hmm. afford to go to university or, or see that as something that they could do. Um, next priority area is uh, retain. So they talk about keeping hold of uh, the staff that are there and the sorts of measures yep. uh, that can be taken to um, increase staff retention, flexible working, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they talk about reform. So different ways of working, um, changes to education. So I think we can reflect on those apprenticeship um, uh, roles there as well um, and uh, highlighting the, the importance of embracing technology and so forth. So um, interesting. Yeah. Are you coming yeah, in there, uh, Yeah. So I, I guess just to comment, so Christine has rather helpfully gone off on Google and said that apparently there's 1.27 million full-time equivalent staff working in the NHS Trust in England. So that's if you believe Google, which we tend to believe a lot of what it says and stuff. Um, so, yeah, um, a lot so of 10 people. 10% vacancy rate then, essentially. Yes. And, and that's one of the challenges, isn't it? It's the vacancy rate and, and you know, that, that focus on how do we increase the staffing? Because as you're going to hear throughout this document, that the current situation cannot continue for the NHS to continue. Um, but also, you know, it's about that retention, because actually that's probably the biggest challenge we, we see and things. But, yeah, when we look at this overview, what are we seeing, Andy? Yeah. So and, and actually, so I've been looking at some of the articles in, you know, in Pulse and from, um, from NHS Confederation and... Um, 
health foundation and so forth and actually what you tend to find in those articles is they're they're kind of taking a lot of their information from from this summary you come to recognize the structure uh, and see it elsewhere in these other articles um mm -hmm. so they're going to give an overview of the, those main areas really so um and this is really the meat and bones of it so pay attention yeah. to the next few minutes and you'll Definitely. know what's being proposed in the workforce plan or at least uh, the headlines so in terms of training so we're talking about doubling the number of medical school training places some of these things are really really big bold grand yeah you know it's really quite grand so doubling the number of uh, medical school training places um up to fifteen thousand pounds by a year which is that's 10 years in the future so doubling over the course of the next decades um and um focusing uh, those medical places on areas of greatest shortage um and areas that need leveling up geographically so it talks later um that they will achieve this increase in numbers by increasing capacity at existing medical schools and establish mm -hmm. new medical schools so i wonder if we might start seeing new medical schools in some of those areas that need leveling up um, and attached to you know some of some you know universities in some of those more deprived parts of the country um mm -hmm. which Think would be a positive thing actually i know we've we've sort of locally uh we both went to nottingham medical school didn't we gandy and um, I went to I know, yeah. you didn't i know that why did i say that i went to <laughs> nottingham medical school um and when i was there they opened up um, a new graduate entry medical school in derby um which is a neighboring city and a lot of um and you know that's that's grown and a lot more of the medical school activity you know takes place over there so that was something new and expanded places and then more recently they uh, they're in the process of opening up a medical school at the university of lincoln which is in the mm -hmm. county store in lincolnshire and that started as a satellite um of nottinghamshire medical school and i believe it's going to bud off and form its own school lincolnshire is one of these areas actually that's quite you know deprived yeah. um so maybe we'll see more of that sort of activity um uh so also, an increased number of GP training places. So we're both GPs. I guess we're really yep. interested in what's going to be, you know, supporting uh, general practice, the sector in which we work. Go on, Gandhi. I'm going to jump in on there. So an interesting comparison, though. So they're going to double the amount of med school places, but in terms of the actual number of GP places, that's only going up by 50%. Um, and recognising the fact that the push of work towards general practice does suggest that actually the capacity that they recognise there's a training capacity challenge here, but also the output of what people will see in terms of the number of GPs to deal with that workload may may not be where it needs to be. I don't know, perception thing, I think, but obviously there are so many other challenges in that. But it's just an interesting comparison, doubling medical school, but actually the number of people being trained is only going up by 50% when it comes to general practice. And that's a half the increase in GP yeah. training places percentage-wise. That's interesting, isn't it? Because um, they are constantly acknowledging in documents that they want to move work uh, from secondary care to primary care and yeah. looking in for uh, primary care staff and infrastructure but they're not um they're not backing that up with an increase in uh, in, in training places that is comparative to the increase in overall medical training so, so this this implies you know more consultants more hospital doctors doesn't it which it does. Um, seems to run contrary to what you know what is is felt to be needed or at least articulated as what is being needed so that's yeah interesting um observation there gandhi um so uh, increases are not just limited to um to to medical school and, and gp training places i think that's probably what we'll end up talking about um mm -hmm. more than the other areas because that's an area where we've got experience but they talk about increases to to all this and there's a good chart which we'll spend some time on later that shows yeah. the proposed increases to all sorts of different um medical professions and allied health professionals but um, but that's about increasing training places in nursing by 92 percent um 
uh, midweek. It's a whopping increase. It, it's huge, isn't it? Uh, you know, almost doubling the mm -hmm. number of training places for nurses. This is incredibly ambitious. Um, midwifery training places uh, up to around 58,000. Not sure what that means in percentage terms. Um, and they're talking about, again, this apprenticeship routes coming up with 20% of registered nurses qualifying through apprenticeship routes. 9% uh, now. So it is happening at the moment uh, with mm -hmm. a big increase in that. Uh, and 22% overall of clinical staff being trained by apprenticeship routes. So I say that's a big theme um in this and we'll probably talk about that a bit more yes later. we will definitely come to that when it comes to the reform and the training part of this document and stuff which is going to be really interesting because there's lots of theory and this is the stuff that obviously hit the headlines in huge detail so you will want to join us for that part um interesting just to mention it as well because i don't want to forget this yakshita dave coming in with training and supervision is something they don't seem to have addressed well we'll find out if that's in there later on <laughs> Excellent. Um, and then, um, yeah, they're talking again about um, medical degree apprenticeships. That's a big feature of this proposal mm -hmm. with 2000 of those um, places on those schemes uh, in 10 years time. Uh, it's about expanding dentistry places. There is a shortage of dentists, most definitely. Um, I see that for my patients. So increasing dentistry places by 40 percent. Um, some interesting proposals around retaining dentistry um, later. I mean, we'll probably talk about it in more detail, but later they talk about. Um, uh, I forget exactly how they word it. We will come to it. But essentially, if you're trained in dentistry and that's cost the taxpayer, you know, uh, money in terms of subsidizing your training, then you will be obliged to work in NHS dentistry for a unspecified period of time or an unspecified amount of work um, yeah. in order to um, to satisfy your training and not have to pay back your training costs, I suppose. So they don't really talk about the penalty, but that's how these sorts of um, schemes or clauses often work. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, to, and also a big, big focus of this is training more NHS staff domestically. So I guess we'll come to some of the yeah. figures later about the recruitment that happens from overseas, but it is enormous and in particular areas such as nursing it's a lot higher than i even thought it was um mm -hmm. we'll get to the figure later but i did something like 57 percent of all new nurses employed in the nhs come from overseas which just feels absolutely um astonishing uh, but they want to go on on average across all professionals down to about 10 percent of the workforce recruited from overseas yes. but i believe the average across all the specialities is 25 percent is from abroad right. and they want to move that down to 10 percent in the next 15 years i guess quick point to mentions because this is going to come up a few times there does seem to be different time frames throughout set this document obviously the plan is meant to cover the next 15 years in total really important to recognize that the, the certain time frames that seem to be baked into a lot of the stuff and we'll come to that when we come to training session but particularly um 2028 29 um, and 2031, 32, and then obviously the 15 year one, which is the 2036, uh, 37 timeframes. That's where there's lots of stuff. And really interesting, obviously, how this is going to play with potential elections and stuff as well. But yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and we will come to it, but but the timescale for the funding, so the 2.4 billion is the headline funding amount. Yeah. And I was trying to understand quite you know how that's profiled because you read that and you think gosh the, you know the government's dropping 2.4 billion pounds on this right now in order to to try and solve a dire situation but that's not the case and it looks like that's a cumulative amount over, yep. over six years it says and important to remember that's less than one percent of the actual nhs budget so i believe and someone's welcome to google this and correct me if i'm wrong yeah please current do nhs budget is something like 150 billion um so it's 
it is a small percentage influx. It is an influx. Let's not deny that. And we are in a cost of living increase. <laughs> I said it must be trillion. Um, what? One point five mm. trillion pounds. Billion? No, no, no. It can't, it, it can't be. Yeah. Oh gosh, Chris, someone needs to Google this for us. No, no. It, I think it's one hundred fifty billion. Um, oh, billion. No, sorry, you're right. That that yeah. must that must be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Don't know what's happening to my head. Trillion is the American budget, Andy. <laughs> Get a bit confused. Yeah, no, even even accounting for that, I'm completely I'm completely off with my maths there. But yeah, but yeah. so so that but that two point four billion is is cumulative um, over six years. And it mm. says that there will be an additional six hundred billion, uh, six, yeah, six hundred million in million. the first two years. So the way I've in the way I interpret that, and it is a little bit murky, is that by the time we get to year six, there'll be two point four billion additional spend on um, on the focus of this document. I think I don't know. Is that how you interpret it, Gandhi? Very much so. It's it's yeah. not an instant influx. It's a graduated, staggered influx. Um, and again, thank you to Christina coming in with the facts. So planned spending for the Department of Health and Social Care in England is 180.2 billion in 2022-23. Important to recognise that that's for everything that um, they do. Um, so that's um, uh, not just the amount that's spent on NHS England um, and healthcare. That's also public health and other things. And then the subsequent budget for the NHS is under that, which is why I think it was a bit less, about 150 odd. Um, and then Ritu coming in, just a thought, maybe doubling medical students to safety net, secondary care shifts covered as quoted. Potentially, yeah, increasing secondary care and having a benefit. That may be why there's a proportionate increased difference. Mm. But again, worried about that level of increase in general practice, but we'll come to that. Absolutely. So, so, so the next um, key priority area is uh, retain and bend the right yep. culture and improve staff retention. Um, and they want to have um, up to 130,000 fewer staff leaving the NHS over the next 15 years. So you kind of have to break that down year on year. But um, mm-hmm. but it's a big it's a big number and it's a bold plan. Um, yeah. The main things they reference in this, I, I had to look this up again. Is they continue to build on what we know works and implement the actions from the NHS people plan. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about this actually. Um, we did in, in in the past, um, and this is um, a visualization. There's a document you know that goes along with this, um, but it, it kind of broadly comprises of advice for NHS organisations about how to retain staff. Um, it was it was unclear really whether there's any actually kind of direct funding allocated mm-hmm. to, to some of these things. A lot of it feels like the sort of common sense things. The organisations would do if they had the you know the, the headspace and time to do looking after people, sense of belonging, growing for the future, new ways of working, delivering yeah. care. It felt a little bit woolly, I think, when we looked at it at the time. Although these are really you know good good things, and if you've got the, the time and the skill to implement them, I'm sure that they are effective. So um, also so implementing plans to improve flexible opportunities for prospective retirees. So that's retaining people within the workforce. They referenced some of the changes that were made in the spring budget to um, pension tax arrangements that, that impacts mm-hmm. some of those um, uh, consultants, GPs, um, other experienced clinicians towards the end of their career and sometimes disincentivizes continuing in work. Um, and that's work that is already in place. Um, mm-hmm. They talk about this uh, NHS Emeritus Doctors scheme um, mm-hmm. to um, support retired, uh, recently retired consultants um, to 
to support delivery of outpatient care. So I guess that's, you know, not doing the medical take, but carrying on your outpatient clinics. Yeah. Uh, and there is a big backlog in secondary care. So this does feel quite sensible, actually. I had made a note just saying, what about retiring GPs? You know, do perhaps, you know, because that's where staff shortages are also acute, you know, yeah. they're not scoped for some sort of lower intensity work pattern um, for retiring GPs. Um, not covered in this, but um, but nice to see something for the hospital staff proposed, and maybe that's something that can be extended in the future for primary care. Essentially, um, yeah. yeah. Um, commit to the ongoing national funding for continuing professional development. I just made a note here saying ongoing national funding, so then none of the new money's going for this. And I think a yeah. lot of probably what they're talking about is already kind of established part, you know, an established part of um, of working as a doctor. You know, mm. having your um, your development sessions you know, as a consultant um, uh, and I guess, you know, protected learning time as as GPs. Um, we're not sort of funded in the same way or backfilled for our learning, are we, in general practice? No. Um, and it's really variable across the country. Um, but, but hopefully that acknowledges a valuing of, you know, where that does happen for that to continue. Do you want to know how to use System 1 more effectively as a clinician? There are various different things you can look at, but there is only one course that can help you understand this and have all my hints and tips on how to use System 1 so much more effectively. And that's the System 1 course for clinicians. If you want to have a look at it, have a look bit.ly slash S one course, TPP and S1 in capitals. But if you do have a look at it, what will you get? Well, you'll get content and information and guides on how to use System 1 more effectively, from getting started with System 1, to navigating the patient record, to understanding the key parts like doing a consultation, as well as prescribing, clinical admin, communication, and various other information. And this includes my hints and tips on how to use System 1 so much more effectively so it saves you time and your patients stress in terms of their navigation with their patient journey. If you want to have a look at it, check out the link. As I said, it's bit.ly slash S1 course and the TPP and S1 are all in capitals and you will get access to all this content perfectly. Even better yet, there's a money back guarantee. So if you don't actually find this course has helped save you some time, just let me know. I'll refund you the course once you've completed it and stuff. Catch you then. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I don't think it actually mentions that would be available to GPs either. So I mean, it's, it's just a it's just yeah. a, a statement, isn't it? On commit to ongoing national funding. So I just hope that people can look at that and say, don't don't reduce the you know the protected learning time opportunities in our area in primary care. Um, Despite the fact that's exactly what's just happened because of the strikes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's something. I mean, we probably come to that, that at the end. Um, but I guess nowhere in here does it mention... Uh, actually, it does mention pay. I have highlighted that. It doesn't talk about One. how they will address it at yeah. all. Um, but it does highlight that, you know, the NHS works in a competitive recruiting environment, you know, for all staff, you know, not just clinical staff. Um, being incentivized to go off and work in Australia and other places, um, mm -hmm. you know, but for all staff, although it doesn't propose how they would address that. Um, so, uh, yeah. occupational health and wellbeing services for all staff, um, 
I guess we should all have access to occupational health, although I think even in primary care, it's sometimes a little bit patchy who or unclear who provides that to your staff at mm -hmm. times. Um, and, and wellbeing services. So I guess there's the wellbeing quaff QI that they can point to. I think that part in particular, I mean, we're going to come to it when we go into this section of retain in more detail. But I guess one thing I would recommend to those people who are joining us live and, and to those who are listening at this point, this is probably one of the areas that as an action for general practice, you may need to take forward. So how does your current occupational health system work? Do you have access to that? But also what additional services do you have access to? And the reason for doing that is it links massively with the QI wellbeing um, pathways that many of you are probably looking at right now in terms of workload that needs to happen and stuff. So just wanted to identify it. We will come to that in more detail a bit later on, but definitely want to, to, as an action, I would recommend anybody within general practice listening to this, check on this because this is something that you should have. But I, even I don't know how to access it in my local area. So when I read this yesterday, going through it in more detail, this is the thing I've, I've put as an action plan for myself. I need to find out how that works. Absolutely. Uh, I've always precedent spotting in these documents. And mm -hmm. so this was an interesting statement. Explore measures with the government, such as a time period to encourage dentists to spend a minimum proportion of their time delivering NHS care in the years following graduation. So I thought that, that was interesting. Um, I know Do you want to magnify that one, Andy? Yeah, new tool. Hang on, a little bit laggy. Here we go. Here's the magnifying glass. So, but that's, that, but that's where it is. So. Um, so I guess the idea is, you know, the the, the country spends money on dentistry education and um, a lot of dentists move out of providing NHS care, often yeah. fairly rapidly following graduation um, and into the private sector. And it's uh, suggesting addressing that by having a tie-in period. <laughs> so that's interesting. But I think, you know, if this um, happens for dentists, you know, it may be something that happens for other staff, you know, particularly if you're nipping off to Australia immediately after, you know, graduating mm -hmm. as a doctor within the first few years maybe the um the government will become uh, will come knocking at your door to uh, pay back some of your training you know or something like that uh, to be released from your nhs commitments so i think that's got the potential to set an interesting precedent if that well, like you said it, it's definitely precedent setting and um it's not uncommon when discussions in the media and you know if you ever do go into the comment sections of various things they always talk about you know particularly that more right-wing element of it whether that you know staff should be enforced to do a mandatory training period for the nhs rather than going abroad and stuff and, and this is the first indication that this may ever actually happen focused very much on the dentists and speaking to a few dentists they were just like yeah best way to make people not want to be a dentist to be honest is how they took it um and but obviously it's a lot of that is down to the current situation that many dentists feel they have when it comes to the funding opportunities they've got for nhs versus private care and is that a marker of the way that the system is funded rather than necessarily um the pro training and, and everything else and stuff so really big precedent i think they're setting there to be honest yeah, people draw parallels with, you know, other areas of life, such as the military, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can get a military, you know, sort of uh, bursary to support you with paying for your degree. Um, and then you owe a bit of time to the military, you know, afterwards, mm -hmm. you know, so there's a bit of pressing there. I would say that's structured a bit differently, though, because the, you know, the, the, they are helping you with the self-funded part of your degree there. Mm -hmm. You know, which is actually quite different to I think what's been suggested with with dentists um, mm -hmm. because I understand you know dentists they just pay their nine thousand a year and that this will be something in addition 
for you know uh, to, yeah. to um, tie in because of some of the non um, uh, student funded costs. So it's quite quite different. So just highlighting people do draw parallels, but those parallels aren't quite as parallel as they might seem um, on first pass. Um, so moving on to reform, um, mm -hmm. so reform, working and training differently. So this is an interesting area. It's quite a lot of changes suggested, really. So um, there's a focus on expanding enhanced um, advanced and associate roles. And mm -hmm. so we will get to that table showing the proposed increases in various staff training places, but they definitely um, have their place and we'll definitely be seeing more of, of, of those um, sorts of uh, jobs and roles in the NHS, um, according to the plan. Um, so, and just to put some numbers around that, so um, I think they say about 1% of the workforce is made up by these roles. They're suggesting 5% uh, um, of the NHS workforce should be made up of these roles uh, by the end of the plan. So we'll take that to be 15 years. And they're talking about um, 6,300 um, advanced practitioners. So mm -hmm. there's a range of different professions, right, Gandhi? You, you, yeah, so advanced practitioners is that potentially top end of the clinical spectrum for the individual kind of specialty based additional role. So um, I guess the parallels we could draw within our PCN work. So obviously we've got pharmacists, we've got physiotherapists, we've got um, nurse practitioners, you know, those kind of things. But when they get to that slightly higher level operating at the top of their kind of clinical level, that's when they get termed as advanced clinical practitioners. And that's kind of the umbrella term they're now using, recognizing that people can come from any of those potential or different specialities. I've not mentioned all of them um, to work at that kind of level, which some would say is, you know, um, on par with you know the top of the medical roles in terms of you know GPs and consultants and that kind of stuff maybe a, a little bit under in terms of responsibility and stuff but actually I think that's very much organizational based as well so um, and as ever it's always down to the individuals in my view how good they are at those particular things rather than necessarily what the role can let them do yeah yeah and so particularly they're highlighting uh, more nursing associates mm -hmm. um, up to 10,000 uh, training places did you raise so that an interesting one, I think, Andy. Um, so nursing associates, just for clarity, um, is a, a training program to become effectively a nurse. Mm. So I think this is where that apprenticeship model element of stuff comes more into play. Um, and, and interestingly, particularly in general practice, we, we never really had nursing associates until the PCN DES made them a reimbursable role um, a year and a half ago, I think it was, roughly. Um, so, you know, that, that's an interesting one to see. I think in hospitals, they're much more commonly available and people, you know, can train. And that the whole point is that allows them to become a nurse. I think it, it's as an operational level, it's equivalent to a healthcare assistant. But it's a healthcare assistant with uh, some additional qualities and stuff that makes them more um, available to become, like I said, nurses. And, and then you've got, even got the trainee nursing associate role, which I find even more complicated to be honest to understand because I think that's just basically a healthcare assistant, but just termed in another way and, and different things. But as ever, if anybody can clarify that in the comments, please do because I think it's an area even we struggle to understand sometimes in terms of the variance differences between the different roles. Absolutely. Um, increasing physician associate uh, training places to mm -hmm. over 1,500 um, over the next 10 years. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and they're talking about growing the proportion of NHS staff working in mental health uh, and primary and community care, uh, mm -hmm. grow these roles by 
by 2036-37. Um, I guess we can just return to that increase GP um, training places by 50% uh, that mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. So that's still sort of not keeping pace yeah. with general in aspirations to increase staff in um, in community care settings mm -hmm. to highlight that. Um, so, uh, so talking about re reform, so work with professionals to embrace technological innovations such as artificial intelligence and robotic assisted surgery, convene an expert group to identify advanced technology that can be used more effectively in HS. So just, just talking about technology. They don't yeah. talk an enormous, they do talk about technology, but I guess this isn't yeah. a document about technology. This is about workforce, but they're just acknowledging that that is an area where the NHS can be more effective and more yeah. productive, and it's important to invest with that. I guess people need, you know, when you get into the detail, people need to be trained how to use these technologies and to be accepting of these new technologies and approaches. So it's appropriate that it's there. And they named up the, the Topol review. I, mm -hmm. I just I just looked it up again. I remember we I think we looked at this at the time again, yeah. um, as well. Uh, nice interactive background on there on their website here um, <laughs> although that's that's pre-pandemic now that's you know 2019 and I definitely mm. remember talking about that in groups before everyone was wearing masks so even that might be a little bit out of date and maybe do uh, do a refresh and it's interesting that obviously this mentions about the use of tech in healthcare obviously the thing that's happened in the interim for the length of time it's taken to publish the yeah. workforce review is the introduction of generative AI yeah. in, in the world uh, and the recognition that that's going to just you know it is a situational change that's going to happen in the way that the whole of our lives work and stuff and the impact that will have and um, it briefly mentions ai um in this document but actually that's a, a question that need, does need to be considered as to how ai is actually going to change every aspect of things including workforce and how that works and it does make some mention that the use of you know tech and ai will have an impact on the workforce that we need Obviously, it's not detailed enough. I think we're still in that place where people don't really recognise what that's going to have an impact on. But it's an interesting one and, and definitely one that I know at points we will probably end up going into it anyway, won't we, Andy? Yeah, and it's just interesting because they make, in order to make predictions about workforce uh, demand and requirements, you know, out towards 15 years, they make a number of assumptions, you know, mm -hmm. one of which is an assumed level of productivity growth of, I think, 1% to 2%. Um, yeah. And that's something that, you know, the use of generative AI could potentially um, change significantly and their predictions, you know, might be way off. Um, yeah. They also acknowledge that it's kind of a living plan and it might change over time. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, just just interesting, you know, and it, it's challenging making predictions and planning things like on this sort of timescale, but then also because it takes so long to, um, to train um, health professionals, um, you know, actually it might take, you know, 10, 15 years really to, um, to fully train and have an experienced GP, for example. Um, mm. You have to plan this far out. It's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about the, the importance of generalist core skills. That's just something that just comes through in a number of places that I'd highlighted mm -hmm. there. Um, and then they just acknowledge, okay, the new roles that we've been talking about um, need to be appropriately regulated uh, by the GMC or some other body. And they're, they're, they're highlighting the GMC. And they talk about working with um, the uh, professional colleges and the GMC to make sure the new roles are properly um, regulated, which is very, very sensible. Um, 
And with that, with the, in, in, in the addition of the regulation for some of the roles as well, so it mentions anesthesia, something or other, and physicians associates, which I know physicians associates in particular, yeah. many people are looking at, because that may then enable them to prescribe, which has been one of the challenges that they obviously face in terms of the um, productiveness and stuff that they can have um, because of that. Yeah, and I think actually later in the document, they do t t talk about a pathway towards prescribing for physicians mm -hmm. associates. That's that's acknowledged um, in there. Um, support experienced doctors to work in general practice under the supervision of qualified GPs. So I guess this is sort of career grade, you know, SAS, um, SAS doctors, doctors yeah. that they're talking about um, here. That's interesting because they all need supervision of a fully qualified GP, of which there aren't enough of, and of which, you know, mm -hmm. there's a more modest increase in training places compared to other training places and medical entry. So there might be a bit of a bottleneck forming there or a change in that role to be one of more, more supervision and, and less direct clinical contact mm -hmm. with the GP. But of course, that's what the public often say that they want. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, more, more hands to the pumps. That's probably welcome. Why did you have any strong feelings about that one, Gandhi? So it's an interesting one, and I'm going to highlight a comment by Ritu, actually, that she's put on. So all the suggested job roles need GP supervision and presence. So the GP takes ultimate responsibility for the other's errors. It feels like work, WIC infrastructure being considered for solving primary care. Walking not quite sure. Right? Yeah. Sorry? Walking centre, is that what I mean, WIC? Potentially, yeah. Um, yeah. I wasn't quite sure what, what yeah, it, it makes sense, work, walking centre and stuff. I'm, I'm going to relate this back to our review we did a the other week, um, so the, the state of um, education and training in uh, practice um, and medicine and practice by the GMC, which highlighted that obviously when they looked at the various professions, um, the burnout risk was highest in GPs and even more higher in trainers. So when you go to the two cohorts of GP and GP yeah. trainers in particular, burnout risk is stupidly high um, because of lack of provision and, and, and you know time and resources. And the workforce plan very much is focusing on increasing training. Um, and as part of that, the reforms are very much about increasing the number of people coming through. There's very little in here about support for those trainers, um, for those people doing the training, whether that's in general practice or whether that's in um, secondary care. It, it doesn't really, from what I could pick out, give as much detail in terms of support for that and how that's going to be compensated, because obviously many of these trainers are still doing the day job. And like mm. me like you know i know you're planning on doing as well and many of our colleagues and stuff who you know it just raises the question where's the supervision capacity coming through and i think that point by Rita about the responsibility we've seen that actually just recently in the headlines um you know about some uh, unfortunate stories that happened with patients where they felt they haven't had a you know the service they should have done because they weren't seen by a gp they're seen by somebody who was being supervised and actually that's the public perception to some degree as well um and, and that's something that needs tackling Absolutely. The next, the next says, I'm really not quite sure what function this is serving. It says, work with regulators and others to take advantage of EU exit freedoms. So, um, do not quite sure <laughs> what they're referring yeah, to. This is one I struggled with as well. Um, there. Quite do you know what? They're going to get rid of European Working Time Directive and have everybody working enormous hours again. Or uh, anyway, uh, it, 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 it's vague and one wonders if it's designed for a certain audience, but I'll mm -hmm. say no more there. Um, and then this one is, has been quite controversial. Support medical schools to move from a five or six year degree programme to a four year degree programme to meet the same established standards by the GMC. So the same standards. So um, mm. maybe we're talking about more, you know, compressed um, courses, less generous 
holiday. It's interesting. And they also say support as well. So when I first read about this in some of the initial articles covering this document, um, it, it sounded a bit like it was to be man mandated or that you know all courses were going to be reduced but they're going to support medical schools to move so it sounds like this will be in collaboration with medical schools and that maybe not all medical schools will, will be obliged to do this um and maybe you know actually you know there might be market forces at play you know, some people might want a four-year medical degree some people might not want a four-year medical degree it might depend where they apply um yeah so what did you think about this gandhi I mean, like you said, this is one of the big reform changes that they're talking about is basically shrinking training. And it's not just in terms of medical. They do mention this in some of the other ones in terms of improving accessibility and then obviously the apprentice model in mm. terms of training and stuff. Um, but, you know, there's lots of concerns that when you, you know, is this just being done to increase the supply? But then what is the quality that you get afterwards? Because actually we know that medicine is a massive degree. It's always been that way because of the amount of information people need to learn. And actually... There is more, you know, um, you know, many people come out of medicine degrees feeling that they're not fully prepared for what they need to do. You know, the stuff around the communication side of things has taken a massive focus. Pharmacology, a lot of places have reduced the amount of treatment they do in pharmacology because they feel it's not needed. But actually, are we then seeing more issues in terms of prescribing challenges? Um, and actually, the training supervision, there probably needs to be more of that because actually doctors... GPs, medics can be asked to supervise more people, and that's not part of the training. So it kind of makes the argument, in my view, that training needs to be expanded to allow for the time for that to work more effectively. Could things be changed? Possibly. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe it does need reform in that sense, but shrinking it? Yeah. We, we were talking a few, I mean, it's not long since the um, the RCG was, re was recommending an increase in the training time for general practice from three to four years, mm -hmm. um, acknowledging the increased complexity of the role um, and actually um, uh, to, 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 to some degree my, my experience of uh, training is that because of things like the European Working Time Directive mm -hmm. and uh, and so forth although that may not directly apply to people not paid for their time like like students but yeah. it has uh, I think created a culture where people probably probably for, 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 for good reasons and for their own um, sanity spending less time at work um, you know when training um, but um, I think that that lends itself to um, to the idea of increasing training length rather than reducing it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. Um, I've got mixed feelings about this. And my initial thoughts as someone who's done a five year medical degree was, um, you know, I'm glad it wasn't four. I didn't, you know, it felt like being, um, you know, it was a big shock to the system beginning work um, after yeah. five years. So, you know, goodness knows what it would have been like after, after four. I'm not sure I, I would have wanted to do a four year degree. Another thing was, um, I was speaking to a colleague and he immediately said, oh, does this mean that, you know, our training will be less compliant with other countries like Australia and Canada and New Zealand? Mm. And that people will have to do um, some additional exams or qualifications in order to emigrate and that people will be locked into the UK system. And you know, maybe that's a little bit too um, cynical, but um, I just thought that was an interesting like initial jerk observation. Yeah, but like I say, it is a valid point, isn't it? The fact that because that's going to change, is that going to have an implication in people's abilities to go to other country and then stop some of that bleed that they are seeing because of a statutory change that they're going to make? 
Um, interestingly, Reed has come up with another point. Maybe the four-year training would work for mature students who have already completed medically related subjects, e.g. pharmacology, biomedical. I, th I think that's a realistic yeah. discussion because they've got the elements of training and understanding from that point of view, similar to how, for example, um, uh, doctors doing max facts, so dentists have done a full dental degree. Then when they come in to do um, max facts on the medical side, they only often not join in for the final three years rather than the first two years because they've already done that element of training and, and understanding and stuff. So uh, I definitely agree there's the option when it comes to mature graduates in terms of those who've already done a um, you know science-based degree and stuff and potentially even some of the other ones. Um, but on mass reducing it, um, all I can say is I would not want to be a medical school course organiser right now. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think this may be one, as Rizu says, for you know giving medical schools the flexibility to meet mm -hmm. kind of special use cases in terms of um, degrees, which I think would probably then be you know be welcomed. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, just moving on. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so they're just acknowledging. I think I think we might touch on this a little bit later in the points we've got planned, but they're sort of mm -hmm. saying these opportunities to boost the labor are, are um, contingent on investment in other areas, uh, you know, mm -hmm. they highlight infrastructure and technology. Um, you know, the, the, actually the investment of 2.4 billion over that six year period of time itself is not sufficient to deliver this plan. And that there yeah. are other areas such as infrastructure and later in the document, they talk with about that meaning, um, but real estate, you know, places to put people, um, you know, uh, technologies, support infrastructure, logistics, um, you know, and you know, technology um, to support these people working, uh, and that that's not covered in this um, in this document. So, so we talked about the the kind of headline stuff and things, and I guess that that's a lot of the information you may need to get started with this document. We, we're now going to talk about some of the more detailed stuff, aren't we, Andy, the, from those individual sections and stuff. Yeah, and I think we can probably sort of dip in and do do the highlights, I guess. And it might be that yeah. there's appetite for us to do, you know, one of the sections in more detail in the future. But um, I know we've made some some notes against the document. So I guess we'll just be kind of dipping in and just seeing what we find is interesting. That summary is fantastic in terms of providing an overview of the, the structure and the key elements of the document. So these are things which maybe we feel that there's a bit of additional added value um, mm -hmm. in terms of discussing. So we'll just scroll through. So, so they make the, the case for change, and um, it may be worth just articulating um, the headlines uh, here. Yeah. Um, and we can dig in a little bit more if we want. But you know, actually, they, they consider quite a lot of things in terms of building the case for change for this document. I guess part of this moving through government is actually convincing. You know, we might feel it doesn't go far enough, but for many people, this level of spending may be too far. You know, within government, mm -hmm. you know, the Treasury, for example. So they do have to make a case within the document. So okay, they're saying number of staff in HS has grown <laughs> over the past decade, uh, but there's rising demand, um, changes in. Um, patterns of access changes mm -hmm. in um the types of of um treatments that are available and your know, demographic changes people are getting older people are getting more sick so that's going to force demand even if the, the level of the population remains static um they do highlight somewhere that actually the population in the uk is going up so it's not a surprise that yeah. the number of medical staff needs to go up in proportion to that um they're acknowledging that historically we we haven't um, been training enough staff. Um, just cherry picking here, really. Um, 
they're just they're all technology. These challenges are faced across the developed world. Um, and actually, it was interesting because we um, we looked at a few weeks ago the um, uh, there was I think it was from the Commonwealth Foundation and the yeah. um, the oh, what they called <laughs> the Health Foundation in the UK, um, highlighting actually primary care was similarly stressed in lots of countries. Um, you know, not just in the UK. So they're probably all right in saying that these patterns in work, you know, patterns in challenges in healthcare workforce uh, are present across the world. Although I think the NHS is a particularly uh, difficult case. Um, there's a current focus on responding to immediate care needs, not planning for the future, not focusing enough on prevention. Um, they, I'm just scrolling through. It must be later on where they acknowledge, and we've talked about it before, that there is an in you know, 25% of recruitment is from overseas at the moment, yeah. and that there is a current reliance on overseas recruitment, which they feel is not sustainable um, and not um, appropriate. But I mean, in that section, they are they are kind of just highlighting and making that case for change. It, it continues. There's 21 points. Um, this graph I this thought was a good place to start, though, isn't it? The graph. Yeah. I think that's probably worthwhile yeah. spending a bit of time on that. Yeah, shall we shall we get the magnifying glass out? I'm sure yeah. that will be useful. <laughs> yeah. So um so on the screen we've got uh it, it's an infographic, isn't it, rather than a graph. And we're looking sure. at the starting position. So um we're saying the the current demand um and uh these figures are hundreds of thousands of um I think full time equivalent roles, I think. Um mm -hmm. and so the current demand, I'm gonna get rid of the magnifying glass actually it's making it's oddly making it more difficult because i want the pointy bit um so current demand represented by by a, a red block current supply and then current shortfall which is you know 154,000 full-time equivalents there and then this projections so it's saying that the red bit will grow by by this much um you know about 800,000 um over the 15 years because of growth in demand saying that supply of staff will grow by this much so there's mm -hmm. about 200,000 person shortfall um but through improving retention you know one of the pillars of this document they're hoping to retain um between 55 and 128,000 more staff um with the training measures they're hoping to recruit an additional 122 to 181 uh mm -hmm. full-time thousand staff um, they're saying they're going to lose some more to reduce reliance on international recruitment. So there will be there's a deliberate reduction in people coming from overseas um, mm -hmm. of 58 to 6300,000. Um, they're hoping to increase other recruitment 15 to 110,000. And then they're going to retain some bank supply of 114,000. And this is how they intend through the implementation of this plan to reach the end position where supply just about meets demand um hopefully that was useful <laughs> it's uh, it's just interesting to look at you know how they are expecting the training element the retention element um you know in the reform elements to have an impact um mm -hmm. on the numbers so just that i just thought it was worth trying to understand that graph um also in this section they're just highlighting the shortfall in qualified gps is projected to be fifteen thousand full-time equivalents in 15 years um, I just noticed they're not in this document claiming that GP numbers have gone up and, um, you know, that, that sort of metric that we have seen until late from the government. They seem to have sort of 
dropped that for this. And actually later in the document, um, they acknowledged that I think GP numbers, full-time equivalent qualified GPs fell by 1.8% in the last mm -hmm. one year. You know, so that's nearly 2% of full-time GPs left within the one year. The, the overall numbers of um, full-time equivalent GPs went up by, I think, 1.4% in aggregate, but that was because of the increase in training places. So actually yeah. qualified, unsupervised qualified GP numbers went down. Um, I guess yeah. at some point they will start going up as those trainees come through if um, people stop leaving. Uh, yeah. But um, but anyway, they're being more realistic, I think, about the numbers of GPs, which I think is really, really refreshing um, mm -hmm. to see, I guess. Um, so, and then... Uh, the other bit I liked was they just they do. Uh, I've seen some criticisms of the document saying okay, it, it doesn't do anything about um, estates. It doesn't do anything about um, the workforce in social care, which has a big impact on whether people can move from a hospital bed, you know, back to their own home with a social care package. Uh, and it doesn't address any of that. And actually, the document itself is quite open and honest about that. And they say, actually, um, what is within scope for this document is the NHS workforce. They acknowledge that other things will um, impact the effectiveness of these measures, including pressure on social care, including um, issues around um, infrastructure and estates, um, that some of this educational activity will need additional funding. Um, I, I don't know whether they're directly alluding to the fact that you need to supervise uh, these people in training and that the cost of that is not necessarily reflected in these plans or at least the, the presence or absence of the workforce to do this, as well as the day job, you know, isn't acknowledged. Um, so they do acknowledge those those elements. So I thought that, that was, worth, um, was worth highlighting. And then, yeah, so that's there we are at that section. Um, and then the next steps uh, section here in this section is really quite short. Um, and actually, they sort of name drop things they're already doing. So mm. on the changes already happening in the NHS to make it a more compassionate and inclusive culture. As, how's that been going in the last few years, Gandhi? I was being a little bit um, facetious in asking you that question. Um, mm. But actually the NHS is quite an inclusive, you know, in terms of inclusive, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that they're trying. Um, I think people might feel not treated that well, yeah. uh, particularly in terms of pay compensation attitude, attitudes towards people taking strike action and speaking out against pay and, and, and conditions. Um, you know, is, is not felt good. And maybe that's not coming from the NHS, but coming from the, from the government um, potentially. Um, they acknowledge that um, oh, we're merging. Health Education England, NHS Digital and NHS England, um, you know, this will allow us to be more coordinated. So that's the next step, but I guess it's already happening. Um, and they well, say, usually, I think a lot of people would feel that, that that change, that merger has actually led to such a inefficiency currently in terms of how the organisations work that nobody seems to know who's doing what, to be honest. Um, and of course, an element of chaos that has had an impact in terms of how things are currently operating. So, um, uh, it's, it's a change they've made with a longer-term benefit rather than a short-term benefit, and unfortunately we're in that short-term period. Um, but it, it is interesting to see how that's had some impact, particularly that coupled with the, the change from CCGs to ICBs as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Change change, change fatigue is, is rife in the NHS. That's the NHS, um, isn't it? <laughs> so, I think, should we focus on some of the, the graphs? I just, I, 
highlighted this this graph and people may want to to hop in and, and have a look uh, which mm. is interesting is the comparison of practicing doctors per 1000 what page is that on andy sorry in 2021 sorry what page was that on uh i'll just go to the bottom page 28 yeah of of the document um so practicing doctors per 1000 population just highlights the uk's position so um so this is it's an interesting graph actually so sort of towards the top you've got countries like austria norway spain germany and spain you know interestingly that it's there not as rich as some of the other countries on this graph mm -hmm. and actually you know united states you know is lower that really surprises me because i'd have thought the united states maybe had a more healthy or oversupply of doctors per 100,000. but it's interesting but the uk is towards the bottom of this graph you know of other nations um and then it looks like maybe this is g20 it doesn't say there are about 20 maybe a little bit more um mm -hmm. and then practicing number of nurses it's kind of in the middle really but there is a, a huge um difference between those with the highest numbers and the lowest numbers and then uh, just on the next page it shows the number of medical and nursing graduates per 100,000 population um mm -hmm. okay actually sort of middle of the pack actually so there must be yeah. other countries like germany who do import a lot of their their workforce one imagines uh, based on uh, based on this data um, and then we did say um, earlier um, have they acknowledged pay and yeah they do acknowledge pay um, they just said that yeah attracting and retaining highly engaged workforce is becoming challenging it's a difficult market in which to um, in which to uh, report and I think later on it it, it it specifically sort of says this is out of scope for this document um, and I'm sure they wouldn't want to publish a document that interferes with the strike negotiations and all of that so it's understandable mm -hmm. that that isn't within the document um, but it's but it's it, it's not um, I don't know did you have any other thoughts so on it pay? Mentioned later on in the retain section how headline um, you know headline pay is not the only determinant of how somebody wants to work and stuff so moving away from pay being the focus I think within this document like you say um, whether this is deliberately done to move away from some of the current strike actions and obviously we're about to head into one of the longest protracted strikes ever done in medicine um, so it's really interesting to see that this document makes very little mention of one of the core things that does have an impact on workforce, which is pay. But like you say, I think they've just sidestepped that because of politicking, shall we say? Absolutely. Um, just if, if people were wondering about the comment I'd made earlier about the GP workforce um, mm. and the, over the course of the last year, um, qualified full-time equivalent GPs are down 1.8%. Um, mm. But... Um, that the overall GP workforce because of the inclusion of trainees was up 1.4%. So that's just interesting if you're having uh, discussions with people um, about those figures. Um, but also a lot of people seem to think that the reason why GPs numbers are actually going down is because it's the more senior experienced ones leaving, you know, retiring, that kind of stuff. Interestingly, when you look at the, you know, the, the 30 to 35 year olds in terms of general practice, the number leaving from that element is going up. So the problem we are also having is that people are qualifying, but then they're leaving really, really quickly. Um, and that speaks massively into that retention aspect. Yeah, or, ju or just working part-time, you know, mm -hmm. resulting in a, re a reduction in full-time equivalent yep. GPs. Um, won't spend too much time here, but they, they talk about the, the, the demand drivers underpinning the modeling. I say modeling is quite important. This is a 15 year plan and they have to make a lot of assumptions to uh, plan against. So they're just acknowledging about the demographic changes um, 
this ambition to uh, move to more prevention um, and proactive care uh, in the in the community um, and um, you know, need to address patterns of demand. So that's interesting. So train. Um, gosh, we've hit the hour mark, Gandhi. It is a big document, isn't it? And it was yeah. it was ambitious. Um, but it's actually really good stuff. Um, let's go for it. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's go for it. Um, so uh, in the training section, so uh, I don't I don't think we've highlighted too much here, uh, but and actually we've seen a lot of these figures before. So they want to increase the domestic education. Uh, so they need to increase training by fifty to sixty five percent in order to meet their targets for domestic um, training. Um, so they talk about this. 2.4 billion cumulative will be invested in education and training over the next six years. Um, so I think that that's so again, as we spoke before, my interpretation of that is that in six years time, we'll be spending 2.4 billion more on education. Mm -hmm. Or does that mean that the additional spend over? I, I take that to be the additional spend is going to well, be 2.4 billion over the next six years. So you could argue that's going to be 400 million each year it's not going to be likely it'll probably be a bit more in the first few years a bit yeah. later years and stuff but they're just injecting an additional 2.4 billion over the next six years into the workforce so that that makes sense because they're saying over the next two years there's going to be another 600 million so that's 300 a year 300 over the next six is about mm. 1.8 billion which um actually with some incremental increases towards the end of that time period would get you to 2.4 so yeah. That's interesting, and it actually puts some of the previous conversation around funding in a different context, doesn't it? Because we were saying that two point four, you know, is uh, you know just over one percent of the overall NHS budget of one hundred eighty billion. Mm -hmm. But actually, now that increase looks like you know, in terms of an annual spend basis, looks even less. So mm -hmm. you know, the commitment is lower. Um, it's it, we haven't it's difficult because we don't understand the cost of training um mm -hmm. you know, an individual medical student for example uh through to being a qualified doctor but it will be interesting to see a breakdown of how far another 300 million a year goes in terms of meeting the commitments mm -hmm. um so interesting <laughs> um and uh yeah it's about these these um bespoke approaches to optimize domestic supply so there's a table isn't there let's go so this is this is interesting and we said that we'd mm -hmm. show this so it gives the aspiration for um increasing training places by all sorts of different um yeah. different professionals um i'd highlighted just kind of the medical student places and the gp training places and this is where we see those figures you know we've got baseline of 400 GP training places, plan to increase to 6,000. Yeah, that's your 50% increase in GP training places as referenced throughout the document. Similarly, doubling medical school places from 7,500 mm -hmm. to 15,000. And, you know, that's your that's your 100% increase in your doubling of medical school places. Um, and and I just highlighted, actually, I thought, actually, what, what are we looking to increase at near, near or 200%? You know, where's the main focus in the numbers of increase actually nursing associates is a huge area yeah. to uh, increase by 200 percent also um, health visitors district nurses qualified school nurses at community nursing um mm -hmm. looking through these training places significantly and then advanced care practitioners was the other one that was very 
high, but all areas are pretty high. Was there anything in particular on this graph that you that jumped out to you, Gandhi? I think it's reproduced later that you'd annotated against, actually. Yeah, it is, and, and, and thanks for noticing that. But I think, like you say, it shows increases in majority of the, the routes. There's a couple that we didn't quite understand, so this approved clinicians, not quite sure what that details too but there's no actual increases in that particular one it's just mm -hmm. staying exactly the same um i think the other thing is that we see the sizable increases in those roles um which are let's be honest lower paid um and whether that's to get more bang for the buck um you know compared to you know like the acp increases are much less than some of the other ones um the increase in obviously doctors and stuff is um there but I think there's an element of recognizing that, you know, some of the additional increases also need to be there. So, you know, it, where's the increase in significant increase in dentists? Because we're saying that we've got less dentists, you know, pharmacists as well is actually really struggling right now. Community based pharmacy has real challenges in terms of recruitment. So, you know, that has an impact on people getting their medications and stuff. So although there isn't a planned increase, is that commensurate to the population increase and the other increases that need to happen? You could argue, is that the case and stuff? So I, th I think it's good that there are increases. There needs to be increases that has to be recognized. I think the document itself, like so we've identified a couple of questions already when it came to things like the GP increases, obviously from our perspective, um, but also some of the other roles. Yeah, the other thing that jumps out at me, Gandhi, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've not seen any mention of non-clinical staff anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, people need uh, managing, they need human resources, you yeah. know, um, support. You know, um, it's not just all about the clinical workforce and these levels of increase in the clinical workforce will need an increase in the non-clinical workforce. And I don't see that reflected anywhere. So that's an area of concern for me as well, just to articulate that at this point. Absolutely. You know, where's the support for the increase in our reception and admin based teams that actually without them, general practice will grind to a halt very, very quickly. And actually they're the front of house. Let's be honest. Yeah. A lot of those roles are the first contact people will have when they come into an organization and stuff. And it's not really captured. And, and let's be clear, they are part of the workforce. Mm. Can't just think of this as a clinical workforce. Yeah. yeah. And even, yeah, I'm just thinking in, in hospitals and our practices, you know, just managers, you know, to manage the people, do their one to ones, um, you know, rotor management. We're talking about um, later about being a better place to work in the NHS. But, you know, that requires, you know, good management of people in the workplace. Um, on the right hand side, the percentage of apprenticeships. So this is where we, we will get to the apprenticeship in a, in, in a short while, actually, because there are some interesting points around that. But it's looking at the percentage of the uh, the places made up by apprenticeships. So you get medical places, currently not um, looking to increase to 13% uh, of all medical uh, degrees completed as apprenticeships uh, in 2031, for example. The other big areas are around so nurses and nursing associates, uh, and also healthcare scientists as well, 40%, mm -hmm. um, and, and allied health professionals in general. 35%. So that's um, interesting. And midwifery, actually, you know, to say that you could draw some parallels between sort of nursing training with midwifery, that stays quite low, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, just scrolling to look at now. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is where we, so in terms of medical training, so this is the document breaks down changes to training by different professions. And I think. For us, we'll probably focus on the medical training and the GP training, but it does break down by some of the other professions. So we've got that increase in medical school training places and the increase in GP speciality um, training uh, mentioned here. Um, need to ensure adequate growth in foundation placements. So these people need somewhere 
to go after they've done their medical degrees mm -hmm. to enable them to continue their education journey as junior doctors uh, because um, you know uh, when you've completed your medical degree um, your scope of um, safe practice is quite small and that needs to mm -hmm. expand on training places and that needs a lot of supervision from other staff so they need to ensure that that is there so talking about the apprenticeships um so I, th I thought this was quite um quite exciting actually you know as i say the area i work is um is deprived and you know people's aspirations you know are sometimes you know in in line with that and in terms of going and studying a uh, a five or six or perhaps now four year degree you know possibly not in the the city where they grew up you know it's, it feels out of reach for some people but an apprenticeship might be the answer to this um mm -hmm. so so well, that's one of the state's aims to expand uh the representation of the types of backgrounds people have who work in medicine which i think is fantastic and they're acknowledging that actually they're getting pilots up and running from the 24 25 year um this isn't the bit that talks about what an apprenticeship might be. We must get to that in in a bit. Um, and they're talking about bringing the the SAS workforce um, in. So that's the specialist and associate. Um, so the uh, speciality and associate specialist doctors. So that's doctors who have not become consultants uh, but are working in hospitals, sometimes called staff grade, um, and uh, how to make good use of them, including uh, supporting general practice. Mm -hmm. Which we've okay. talked about in previous episodes, so I don't think we're going to go into too much detail on that particular thing. So do check back for the previous episodes, especially given time. Absolutely, um, thirteen percent more public health training places. Um, thought that that was uh, that was interesting. Um, I'm just looking to find because I'd like to talk about the apprenticeship details. Ah, oh, here we go, apprenticeship expansion. So I was thinking, okay, what what actually does a medical degree apprenticeship look like um, I, I was trying to imagine that so they've given us a little bit of a clue here so apprenticeship training routes are employer-led so obviously they will be in association with a learning institution like a university and a medical school uh, but it's saying that they're employer-led um, the intention is to widen opportunities for people from all backgrounds um, mm -hmm. and geographies to join the NHS workforce um, apprentices contribute to patient care during their training so I guess that's different to traditional medical school where you're not really contributing to to actual patient care although people are when they're doing uh, their yep. nerve placements to a greater extent than medical students um, uh, and um, so to implement this plan uh, to develop apprenticeship funding um, they need to hang on what have I written here approach the better sports employers with the costs of employing an apprentice yeah so to make this happen they need to have an appropriate funding model you know mm -hmm. uh, people need to be paid to have the apprentice and you've got to work out the payment of training as well and to what degree does the employer pay i also wonder if um uh, yeah i wonder if that dentistry tie-in principle might be expanded often if you do um additional training with an employer um you know, they can contractually sort of bind you to work for them for a period of time Mm -hmm. Or if you exit, you have to pay back the cost of training. They're not talking about that anywhere, but I'm just thinking about mechanisms um, to um, to protect the investment of the employer. If we're asking employers to make investments of training, you, know, you can see uh, some hospitals in certain areas might struggle to um, recruit and attract and retain staff 
this might be a way of then training their own staff more effectively and subsidizing that. Um, but if it's a somewhat unattractive area to work or there are other areas that are more attractive, they, they don't want the brain drain afterwards. So um, these schemes have to be constructed in the right way, you know, clearly to, 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 to mitigate those those risks. Mm -hmm. So it'd be really interesting to watch the space and see see how that how that all develops um, essentially. And the, the final thing, Gandhi, that I thought was interesting, because I, I love this idea of the anchor institutions that NHS organizations can be um, quite important influences on the area in which they are. You know, then they're, they're not like the local um, bank that's, that may close and leave. Um, you know, actually NHS organizations are generally, you know, in these areas for the long run. Um, can be relied upon by the community, can form part of the community, actually could potentially play a greater role in helping people in those communities aspire to work in the healthcare profession um, and so forth. So I think it's just nice. I've heard that in a number of places and I, I like that as a concept. Um, so I don't want to move on to um, some of the other areas that you were looking at, Gandhi, um, later on. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I mean, I, I suppose just to acknowledge what's in it, there, there's, there's a section about leveraging the impact of volunteers and how to do that more effectively. So this is still in the recruitment mm -hmm. section. Um, and they talk about accrediting and coordinating the action of volunteers within the NHS better and that that's perhaps an untapped resource. And they have an interesting case study looking at some NHS um, cadets, which they did in collaboration with the St. John's Ambulance charity to um, recruit people actually um, to a large degree from underprivileged and black and ethnic minority backgrounds mm -hmm. to um, to work as volunteer NHS um, cadets. One can see this is a good on-ramp actually into some of those other roles, you know, the apprenticeship, nursing yeah. and medical roles, you know, potentially linking that up with these efforts to um, increase the use of volunteers. Um, but I think it's just you know, it's interesting and, and, and probably sensible that they're considering volunteer input in the workforce plan. They do acknowledge that this isn't a replacement for uh, paid professionals within the NHS, but it's it could be a, a useful um, supplement to that. Mm -hmm. So, and then Gandhi, I think you'd looked at retain. So the third of the three yeah. sections. So I'll so, yeah. I'll drive, but you can. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, there's lots that's in here and stuff. It talks about um, the you know that bold section in number one talks about the collective impact in terms of the proposals and the, how that this should hopefully lead to increasing capacity. It's only a couple of percent it makes, but that obviously has a sizable impact in terms of numbers when it talks to anywhere between fifty-five to one hundred twenty-eight thousand full-time equivalent retention is what they're aiming for over the plan, time of this plan. Um, it talks about, um, I guess, such as the wider economic and labour market conditions. So it does make reference to the fact that some other things may change how well the workforce can work. Clearly, in my mind, this is reference to the, the current strikes and the cost of living challenges and stuff and things. But obviously, again, it identifies that this is outside of the scope of the, this particular plan. So it's not going to get involved in that section at all. Um, one of the interesting things about this plan is that it references loads of other plans repeatedly. Um, and it kind of makes you wonder how detailed some of that is. And, and is this the reason why it's taken so long for the workforce plan to come out? I and mean, we've been talking about waiting for this since January at the very least. And actually it was due for almost 18 months, actually. 
but it mentions the NHS people promise, which you talked about earlier, Andy. Um, later on, it talks about um, the NHS people plan as well, which is a separate plan. It talks about um, there's a couple of others in there. I think it was the CARC. Yeah, it's a bit lower down. It's the CARC review. It's the messenger review, the fuller report. There's so many different strands that it keeps referencing. It makes you kind of wonder how much of it has just been pulled together because they've just not had the opportunity to go through it in, in the detail they wanted to. Or is it half-formed? I don't know. I think, I mean, you see a lot of that in these documents now, uh, to, mm. to, to be fair. And uh, they, uh, you know, they, they, they have to um, build Stay in the lane. Before, I guess. They can't, they can't reinvent it. That would be more chaotic, yeah. right? If they were, if they True. were reinventing what was in the fuller, in the fuller plan. Uh, they've mm. all got to weave together to form, you know, the, the overall strategy, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but it gets confusing. Um, and, um, you know, saying, you know, that things are out of scope sometimes feels like it's kicking the can, you know, back to another review um, or to, you know, an awaited review. Yeah. So I, I guess if you wanted more details on those, obviously, from our perspective, if you want to go back and have a look at the reviews from those other plans, just check back in our back catalogue and, and stuff on the channel. We've got that there for you. Key one here on number four. So it says um, that single retention interventions have limited efficacy. Now, the reason why I highlighted this in particular is the fact that it makes absolute reference that just making a tiny little change is unlikely to have an impact in terms of your organization. So obviously, if you look at this from a hospital perspective, one change is unlikely to have um, a huge impact for the majority of people. If you look at this from a community or primary care perspective as well, same principle that you can't just do one of these changes and expect it to suddenly make a massive difference. It is multifactorial, it is multi-level that these changes need to be considered and stuff. And again, that section five talks about huge stuff in there in terms of the management compassionate stuff and things as well as how to do that from a management perspective and things there's some other stuff in there um it talks about various other things but the next one i highlighted was that one about um uh, the minimum standard so a little bit higher um so the, what it has set out here is a minimum standard um that the nhs should meet now again it doesn't really talk about who's responsible um in terms of that minimum standard is that the you know, is that the hospital trust? Is that the GP practices? Is that the ICBs? Is that the place-based areas? Is that NHS England? It's a little bit murky. Um, there's some parts it mentions in terms of it later on about frameworks and that kind of stuff. But again, I, I struggle to understand who it's actually making references, the, the action point for some of this stuff. Not all of it, but, but some of it and things. So I think yeah, just recognising that It's challenge. difficult, isn't it? We, we propose that system partners work together to determine how these actions are best implemented to provide consistent staff experience across organizational boundaries it's mm -hmm. it's it, it is diff it's difficult to know who's doing who's doing what but i suppose it provides something of a roadmap um, mm -hmm. yeah what's in the roadmap Gandhi? what's what else is in there well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, it talks about being compassionate and inclusive. Um, it says about um, the equality and diversity initiatives that have happened over the past few years and how that, as you mentioned, there has been some increase in that. So more people working from ethnic minority backgrounds, more people working with disabilities in the area um, and st stuff around sexual orientation, people not feeling they have to declare that in order to be um, employed and stuff. Um, it talks about continue, more work needs to be done on this part. And I, I guess the reason why I highlighted this, although there is the um, diversity plan, I think it's called, I can't, I've forgotten, the, the EDA, yeah, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Improvement Plan for the NHS, which came out more recently. It's interesting that I've heard from other areas that they're actually looking at stopping a lot of these roles because they feel they've kind of done the job. But actually, 
this workforce plan identifies that it hasn't been done. So just, I'm going to mention it, if this is happening in your area where they are cutting back on equality and diversity, actually here's your reference point to say, well, you shouldn't really be doing that. That's not what the workforce plan says and stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, it was just some commentary I've heard from various different uh, communications in different aspects of my roles and stuff. And, you know, I think it's one to identify that, you know, improving equality, diversity, inclusion should never stop. And particularly the support for making it enabling it should never really stop as well. But who knows? Yeah. And also, I, think, I feel like inclusivity is often something that you that you that you do rather than something that has been done already, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Um, you know, it feels like it should, for, for, for me, it feels like it should be sort of an, an ongoing process. You know, you, mm-hmm. maybe you need higher investment initially to just get the ball rolling, but I don't think it's something um, that you can, can cut, out, can, cut out completely. That doesn't feel right to me. No. We'll head down further and we talk a bit more about some of the changes that happened. I've lost track of where we were. There we go. So um, here we are. <laughs> Everyone working in the NHS should be recognised and rewarded fairly to help ensure that we attract and retain the staff we need to provide the best possible care for patients. The total reward package, which goes beyond headline pay, will need to be attractive and competitive to respond to both changes in people's careers, aspirations and labour market. So I took this to understand as this is the part that they're trying to say is that pay is not the only thing that we need to focus on um, and therefore we're not going to focus on pay. Yeah, I think I mean, I think it's fair. I mean, if you just thinking about um, management theory or motivational theory, what do they say is if people need um, mastery, something and purpose. Gosh, I'm dredging my memory here. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think there's something about being valued. Yeah, feeling that you're good at something um, and having a purpose. And I think the NHS is probably quite good at providing mastery and purpose. I guess, you know, um, the value is still important. I think it goes beyond headline pay, but I don't Mm. I hope that they're not saying that that is not um, a significant factor, given that in other areas they actually sort of directly, you know, sort of reference that it's a competitive labour market and um, the implication is that pay is an issue but yeah but it's out of scope for this document anyway mm-hmm. that's uh that's for the unions to talk to the government about and that's outside yeah. the scope of this document okay so let's scroll down so if we move down yeah yeah um, so this was one I wanted to, to mention. So it talks at, some, at this point about um, it's proposed that NHS organisations work with system partners to develop a clear employee value proposition, so EVP, and promote access across the workforce. I, I mentioned some of this earlier on when we talked about the main um, executive summary and the kind of forward and stuff mm-hmm. that actually this is something that potentially practice could focus on. You know, what is your proposition that you have to your employees what is the occupational health support you offer what are the additional resources you offer this can easily be a great way of taking off that nhs quaff qi um well-being aspect of stuff and and just spending a little bit of time looking at this may help organizations particularly practices to identify some of the challenges they mean to focus on to help with that kind of stuff um, it then also talks a bit later on about communication pathways and how to, um, you know, feedback mechanisms, how organisations need to have good communication in order to maintain staff well-being. Um, and that's the best way to have good staff. I guess I identified this. So if people do want to go back and watch our episode that we did on how to engage staff uh, from a communication perspective. So if you've got system leaders, practice managers, etc., watching at this point, listening at this point, go back and listen to that episode. I will 
tag that into the links in the show notes down below at the end so you can get to that easily. If not, if you type in EGP learning, staff communication, I'm pretty sure it comes up as one of the first options. Um, it's got red background and stuff. And apologies, we don't have the thumbnail ready to show you, um, but I'll take a bit longer to sort out and stuff. Um, it then talks about the health and well-being and stuff of the staff and, and things um, moving up, um, moving down. Sorry, Andy. There you go. Um, 34% of the staff have said that they often or always felt burnout because of their work. 37.4% said that they were often or always found that work it was emotionally exhausting. That's over a third of the workforce are telling you that they are burnt out. So if you were not working in the NHS and you worked, for example, in another environment and an office and stuff, imagine if one third of the people around you suddenly didn't turn up because they were burnt out. That's the level of challenge that we're currently dealing with in the NHS. And that, and that, that for me, was just seismic. You know, that's huge. It would be interesting to see comparative data, wouldn't it, for um, mm -hmm. for other professions or the roles of the types of work, you know, how... Mm -hmm. How burnt out are accountants at the moment you know for example just to, to place those figures in context they feel high and i think mm -hmm. they i think they are high but um it would be useful to have the context i think for those figures um, yeah it then talks about occupational health I, I mentioned this point earlier so maybe an action for practices in particular listening to this is what is your occupational health review options and stuff and well-being service and actually this should be provided by your ics so if it's not you need to be asking them to look at how they provide that for your practice this is an nhs offer this is not a secondary care offer um made very clear in the document and workforce plan and stuff um uh, and yeah so this one was um an interesting fact i wanted to comment so it should have been over two lines but if you go sorry just go slightly back up andy there we go so it starts just there um so there was a, a review that showed by the RAND Europe team in East Anglia University that £80 per member of staff in mental health support can achieve a net gain of £855 a year, saving through absenteeism and presenteeism. So a tenfold return if you focus on the well-being of your staff. That's just seismic to me. You know, This is why you do need to focus so much more on retention rather in my view on some of the other stuff yeah because actually there's a much bigger focus on training there's a huge focus on reform i don't feel and i'm happy to say this i don't feel that the document has gone enough in terms of retention and there's your evidence that it should do to be honest that that would have so much more benefit in terms of what would currently happen and whilst it may cost you a bit of money it will have its returns time and time again yeah well, um, one of the criticisms Andy, I've seen of the document is that it doesn't really focus funding on retention. And, yeah. um, you know, having had a look, I can see funding lines associated with training. And that's where the 2.4 billion is allocated. Um, I don't really see much new funding allocated on staff retention, which is one of the, the three key principles mm -hmm. of the document. Um, I don't know if you've seen any mention of funding there. No, I really That's struggle to find identified funding for retention aspects. It's very much focused more on training um, and there's a little bit on when it comes to reform and stuff. But on retention, it's more about changing principles and working structures rather than funding to support that and stuff. And again, we just covered that, you know, tenfold return if you focus on well-being of staff. That's huge. Yeah, it's difficult to do that, isn't it? Without new funding, yeah. in a, a system that's already overstretched and mm -hmm. not meeting the demands. 
placed on it. Um, next part it talks about good physical work environment important for staff well-being and experience of retention so actually the estates the environment that you work in and the structures that exist around that have a huge impact um we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail in our next episode you'll be able to join us next week or so do subscribe to this because i'm going to definitely talk about it when we get to this topic but if you compare google and how they treat their staff to compare to how the nhs treats their staff there is some serious importance there, um, but we will cover that next week. So if you want to hear that, make sure you subscribe, notify, all that kind of stuff. So you can join us and listen to that episode because we're going to cover some cool stuff in that one. Um, so moving back further down, Andy. Uh, yeah, these reforms will all provide professional. So this talks about the changes to the regulation side of things. And we mentioned earlier about how the GMC is going to start increasing additional roles. So the um, anaesthetic associates and the physicians associates will be brought under the GMC by the end of 2024. This potentially will allow them to prescribe. Interestingly, um, since this document came out, obviously the BMA have put a vote of no confidence in the GMC. So actually the whole regulator side of things is a little bit more complicated now um and i've even heard many people talking about not actually paying their gmc fees because of that aspect because actually why are we paying for a regulator that we have no confidence it does talk about the fact the regulators need to improve in this section so there is some element of will we see a better gmc enforced by the nhs workforce plan obviously that's a whole other kettle of fish and we did talk about some of that in the gmc report that we did the other week and things hmm yeah, some pretty interesting stuff, meaty stuff in that one. Um, last one I came up on, on this one was about the NHS Digital Staff's Passport. So this is a, a electronic aspect of things so, so for tra staff to transfer between organisations so much more effectively. I mean, how much time is duplicated by onboarding training, people having to do their mandatory training in every single organisation they work in, you know, things like the um, performers list changes that can sometimes take weeks and months if you get caught out and just because of one wrong piece of documentation that actually has previously been approved. You know, this would have real benefit and, and actually would really streamline a lot of the healthcare transfer of staff in particular. Um, so it, it's a must do in my view. Um, and then that was it in terms of if you scroll, I can't remember. I, I identified much more in that. Section. No, I, I think that's the end of that section, isn't it? That just highlighting the importance of, mm. of team working. And there's an organizational, organizational development team toolkit that's been published by NHS employers, uh, which people could do. And, you know, maybe that's something we can have a, a look at, Gandhi, in, in the maybe. future and, and, and talk people through that. Um, so I guess final thoughts, um, having spent some time. I guess just to mention after this is the reform section. And now we've not gone into that in more detail because I think we've covered a lot of it already. However, if you do want us to go into that section in more detail, please let us know in the comments and stuff. And we can always go into that in much more detail. But, but to be honest, that's the section that's been covered the most in the headlines and that kind of stuff. And also in terms of we cover that in the preamble, you know, the, the earlier kind of content of this episode and stuff. So we're not going to go into that section in much more detail because also that's medium terms. I think that's stuff that's also going to change likely um, in the future. And, and absolutely when it comes to things like elections and stuff, I will reference an earlier comment we had and I've just got to find it now. Uh, it's gone. Um, so I think Christina mentioned it. Wonder if the Labour Party are committed to um, honour this plan. It'll be interesting to see where, how much of this continues in Labour's um, potential control of the government if an election happens, because obviously there is potential changes in that sense on the horizon. Um, but yeah, really interesting part with the reform. But we're not going to cover 
that part in more detail currently. Absolutely. And just a few comments from me too as well, who's been following closely. Uh, mm -hmm. Sounds like they've had a good experience of converting um, a volunteer into uh, an employer, employee, you know, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, just also just some uh, comments about um, politician support uh, for the NHS as well, uh, which I think are, are well made there too. Mm -hmm. So, Gandhi, um, so what's, think, your, what's, your kind of what's your final impression? Yeah, so I guess our, our views on this. Um, I, I think it's helpful having the NHS workforce plan finally out. That's the first thing I'm going to say. Um, it is a massive document that covers so many different aspects of, of care. I think uh, I mentioned this earlier. I, I don't personally feel it's done enough on the retention side of things. I think the focus of, of the workforce plan, many people were hoping for more meat on the bones when it came to retention, because actually that's the biggest problem we are currently having. Yes, there, there is a gulf in the amount of people we need and we will need in the future because of population increases, complexity in medicine, general healthcare, and the fact that we are starting so much lower than everyone else in, in terms of equivalent nations and stuff. But actually the way you help on that is focus on your existing staff because people are leaving quicker because of the retention aspect. And that's where the, the cycle of change needs to stop in my view. And, and I don't feel the workforce plan has done enough on that. It's got some stuff in there. Funding has not been really identified to help with that side of things. You know, one of the bugbears I have many of the times as a trainer, I'm asked to do a lot of extra stuff that is not funded. So I just simply say, I'm not going to do it because I don't have the time and the resources. And actually, if that stuff was funded, that would probably help the system so much more effectively. But the, reckon, the, the perception is, is that well, we don't need to do that, so we're not going to do that. And that's a real criticism, in my view, in, in aspects of the, the mentality and the culture that we have, unfortunately, within the NHS. Um, and it does need to change, in my view, because actually people's perceptions of how society needs to change, the focus more on well-being and work-life balance is absolutely there because that's why people are now leaving. Um, I think the reform stuff really interesting some really controversial stuff in there particularly the shortening of medical careers and that kind of stuff um and i think how that's going to move forward I, I agree with you i think the apprenticeship idea is a really good one and particularly some aspects of roles are going to lend themselves more to one type of you know apprenticeship than others but i think also on top of that are we going to see a different divergent in terms of the qualifications you know does that mean that those people that have had you know, existing fully qualified training and be viewed in a different way to those who have had apprenticeships when it comes to actual, you know, employability in terms of pay down the line. They're complicated discussions we are not going to have today, but obviously things that may have to happen in the future and stuff. What about you, Andy? Yeah, I think it's an interesting um, document. Um, it's nice to have it, um, you know, published so that we can we can know what's in it. We can start to work with it. Um, there's a lot of focus on on training in it isn't there um and that's where the 2.4 billion is largely you know going mm. to land i think retention and reform are important it's um concerning not to see any additional funding for those things which are an important part of meeting their numbers target you know if you look at their own figures within the report um and then also um there's sort of what what, what isn't there really uh, you know in order to be effective um you know social care workforce i think needs reform i think social care workforce probably needs a plan as well mm -hmm. similar to this one i'd like to see that coming um and actually for those uh newly trained staff to be effective they need people that's going to supervise them they need somewhere to work you know they need the, the whole estates issue um needs addressing as well they need 
buildings to work in, those buildings need to be maintained. I think that's going to cost more money too, but it's outside the scope yeah. of this document. It's interesting that they're not talking about wages as part of the workforce plan because I think that that is quite important as well, although yeah. I guess that's going to be addressed elsewhere. I'm most interested in the changes to medical training. The apprenticeship scheme sounds really good uh, in terms of widening access to a medical education and nursing education for people from um, disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, so I think that that sounds really, really good. Um, I'm also a little bit interested in terms of what will happen with the four year training, um, four year degrees for medical school that you're right and whether those will have the same recognition as as those from organisations that choose to remain uh, five or six years, you know, particularly if some of these newer places might be at newer, newly created medical schools in um, less um, traditionally prestigious institutions, you know, whether you were heading for a two-tier medical sort of education uh, system, as you alluded to, you know, and I think that that would be worrying because the standard of medical education is universally really, really good across the board in the UK at the moment. So interested to see how things develop. I think it at least moves the conversation forwards, doesn't it? Um, so mm -hmm. let's let's watch and participate and see what happens next. And I think if you do want to be part of that discussion, yeah. And I think if you do want to be part of that discussion again, do subscribe, ring the bell, get notified of all that kind of stuff. If you want to hear more about that episode we've got coming up next week that talks about our recent trip to Google, um, definitely make sure you, you join us for that next week because we'll be talking about our little journey and foray in terms of the clinical creator conference, as they like to call it. Um, that we got to participate in this past week and stuff. And as always, we're going to be here to help tech enhance your primary care and learning. And we will catch you in the next episode. Oh, hello there, EGP Learner. I'm Dr. Gandalf, and I often get asked, what kind of resources do you have to try and help those using EMIS? Because you tend to do a lot more stuff for System 1. And often I've really struggled to answer that question because, let's be honest, I don't use EMIS on a regular basis. So therefore trying to help EMIS users is a little bit more difficult for myself. And that really made me feel, well, not great. So I kind of did something to try and help all those EMIS users out there. I went and had a chat with one of my colleagues, Dr. Mike from GP on the Move, and him and I have created a course that you can use to help you use EMIS so much better. That's right, if you use EMIS, but you want to use it so much better, so much quicker, and in such a way that means you go home sooner, then check out our EMIS for Clinicians course. It's an online course that takes you through all the tips and tricks that Dr. Mike knows to try and basically mean you can go home quicker. That'd be a cool thing, wouldn't it? And guess what? It's currently on offer. So if you want to take advantage of this introductory offer and get access to it now, look at the links down below and check it out. Additionally, if you're a practice, network, or wide area that wants more opportunity to use it, send me an email, egplearning at gmail.com. Let's see if we can help you out. And as I like to say, tech enhance your primary care and learning. Shall we get back to it? Oh, and if you wanted one for System 1 users, well, you know I've got you covered, haven't I? Check out the Learn System 1 for Clinicians course, bit.ly slash tpp s1 course.